Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new Ultra Micro Diameter Injection Arrows. Injection utilizes the new Deep Six standard for more big game penetration than ever before. Learn more about the injection today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we are glad that you've taken some time to be with us for an, a great show today. I've got a guest that uh, has got to be one of the most interesting personalities in all of archery and bow hunting. This is a guy who has literally seen it all and done it all over the course of, he says, 64 years, I believe, of shooting a bow, Mr. Bob Markworth. Bob, welcome to Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio. Thank you very much, Christian. I I find it an honor to be able to be interviewed by you and and welcome the uh, welcome the opportunity to talk about our tree and my passion, my love of the sport. Absolutely, and uh, you know, for those of you who are listening today and you think. Bob Markworth. I'm not sure who that is. Bob is uh, a very accomplished bow hunter, and we'll talk about that some today, Bob. You're also an archery entertainer, a very accomplished trick shooter. You appeared recently on America's Got Talent, and as a matter of fact, just a couple weeks ago at the Vegas shoot, which is one of the biggest shoots in the of the year for target shooters. You were there, not as a competitor, but as a, a guest entertainer, uh, sort of strutting your stuff for some of those great shooters. Isn't that right, Bob? Yeah, actually, Christian, I they hired me as the entertainment. Uh, they just had my act, which uh, I did for about, it runs about 15 minutes on stage. And uh, I, I really enjoyed performing in front of my peers because uh, normally when I perform, it's in nightclubs, theaters, on television, and it's all over the world. Uh, I, I've performed in 64 different countries and done over 200 television shows worldwide. Uh, I, I hate to mention it kind of dates me, but I even did three Ed Sullivan shows and, of course, the old Johnny Carson show and so forth. Wow! So, but I just keep I keep going like the bunny does, you know. Hey, man! And, uh, when you got it, you got it, right, Bob? <laughs> well, I I I got it, but I hope I keep it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your show. What sort of trick shots do you do? And and uh, then after you tell me a little bit about that, tell me how you got into that. I mean, there's not very many people out there doing this sort of thing. No, not as long as I have, but uh, I. Uh, <clears throat> In the show, uh, I have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, shots that are awesome, and, and uh, it's all uh, uh, awe and, 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 you know, bang and this stuff and so forth. It's not just shooting at a target. I have a beautiful girl, number one, that's, uh, that's a necessity, uh, especially if you're going to work the nightclub circuit. And uh, she's a brave girl because she's standing up there in front of my arrows. Now, uh, I do shots that I'm 100% certain of. 
Uh, I do naturally shooting balloons out of her hands and mouth, and I do the apple off the head and, and so forth. But uh, I'm 100% sure of the shots, and I keep my equipment in tip-top shape and change the strings and the cables uh, when necessary, which is more frequent than the average archer. And uh, I have a 100% uh, safety record. And the girls uh, are, when I say girls, over such a long period of time, because I've been performing professionally for 64 years. And uh, over that long period of time, a lot of the women get uh, tired of traveling, even though in the beginning they're very enthusiastic about seeing the world and going to places like Paris and London and South Africa and and, uh, uh, South America. But uh, after a while, they feel that, gee whiz, I'm a woman and I want to settle down and raise kids. and You know how it is. But uh, this guy here, Mr. Markworth, has not uh, gotten tired of traveling, gotten tired of uh, being an indirect ambassador for our sport, and meeting foreign people. I love foreign cultures. And each country I go to, I don't just go there to work and make a buck or go there to hunt and have an experience. I go there to try and meet with the people, the locals. Uh, I, like I say, I speak a few languages, and if I can't communicate, I've got a translator, and I'm curious about their cultures, their religion, their political aspirations, etc., etc. So when I leave a country, I have left with a, a great amount of knowledge about those people and about how they live and who they are and what they think. And the more I'm subjected to foreign people, the more I realize that if you don't travel, you tend to believe that the whole world is like where you live, wherever that is. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Because there's different cultures, there's different religions, there's different philosophies, and and each each area feels that perhaps theirs is the best. And then when you have the opportunity to travel, you get to choose for yourself what you think is the best for you. Sure. And, and that gives you an upper hand. And i just give you a quick quote. St. Augustine said, quote, the world is like a book, and if you haven't traveled, you've only read the first page. Yeah, that's true, and uh, we'll get into a little bit more of that in a bit with the uh, international hunting, which you've done uh, just a tremendous amount. But I'm curious a little bit more on your trick shooting. I mean, what kind of uh, equipment are you shooting in these shows? Are you doing recurve, uh, compound? What do you use? And uh, uh not only, you know, the style, but what's the actual bows that you're using in your show? Okay. First of all, when I was a champion, <laughs> which is going back into the 50s in California, I was California junior state champion and, and uh, also the, the men's champion at 16. But the point is, uh, I w- was using a recurve because obviously the compound hadn't been invented. And uh, then when I came back, I never returned to the States. I had left in 1958, and when I came back, it was uh, 1967, and of course, or 66 even. 
and uh, Jennings had gotten involved uh, with, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the invention. So, yeah, the compound bows. And, uh, and then I was coerced into shooting a compound. So when I go on stage now, I try to shoot three different weapons, which I do. I, I, I shoot the compound because that's what everybody knows about. That's what's proficient, and that's what uh, most of the hunters are using. So I use a compound for most of my act. I do a couple of shots with a recurve just to show uh, versatility. And then I also use a crossbow uh, on some very, very intricate shots that I prefer to use a crossbow. It's a little easier. It's a little less uh, taxing of the nerves if I'm going to cut a card edgeways. It's a little easier to do that with a crossbow. However, I can do it with a bow and arrow too. Uh, and I will when it's necessary. But just to take a little pressure off of me, I use a crossbow. So in answer to your question, I use those three weapons. And the, uh, the compound I use at the, this present time is uh, a white. And it's their carbon. And I also use a, a, a bare recurve uh, for the recurve shots. And I use an, uh, an older design of a crossbow made by PSE. And the reason I like that crossbow, it's of a very light weight. It's only 50 pounds. Mm. And when you're shooting an apple off a person's head, you don't need a 150-pound crossbow. No. Uh, <laughs> so I keep, uh, and one thing I might add is I keep safety first. I never push myself on stage beyond what I know I, I'm capable of shooting. And uh, I just don't get that close. The closest thing I've ever done for You Asked For It, which was a TV show years ago, uh, I sh they wanted me to shoot an Alka-Seltzer tablet out of the air. Well, I'm not one of those quick shooters like Howard Hill was. I take my time, aim, and shoot. Well, I couldn't do an Alka-Seltzer tablet out of the air. So I said to the producer, I apologize, but that's not my forte. I said, however, how would you like me to shoot an Alka-Seltzer tablet out of a girl's mouth? Well, I got an immediate response. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And, uh, of course, what I didn't tell him, it was going to be on the end of a toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be a, a, a full inch and a half to almost an inch and three quarters away from her lips. And I'm shooting just a little bit on the outside. So I did that on TV. And uh, I accomplished what they wanted. They got the Alka-Seltzer tablet out of the girl's mouth. But I had that little cushion of safety. Mm -hmm. And I never repeated that shot. I just used that shot for the one TV show. Because I don't like to push myself when I'm shooting at or near a girl. But uh, other shots that don't require a girl splitting a card on a stand edgeways, cutting a uh, thread, that's okay. doesn't matter. Sure. So so you're from California originally, Bob. You, I, you mentioned that, grew up there and became a, a California state archery champion. Um, how did you uh, get involved in hunting? Talk a little bit about your 
your uh, background in bow hunting because that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time. And of course, uh, you are, uh, you know, uh, someone who has rubbed shoulders with a lot of the legends of our sport over the years. Well, yeah, because I've been around long enough, but the thing is, <clears throat> the way I got started when I was a little kid, I'm talking about eight, nine years old, all little kids that go to school at that age, they have heroes. Some of them, it's Captain Marvel, some of them, it's Superman, Tarzan. Well, my hero was Robin Hood for some reason. I kind of liked what the guy represented, you know. He he uh, he was uh, kind of an offbeat guy that could shoot a bow and arrow and, and stood up against what he thought was tyranny. So he became my hero. And then my mom and dad took me to see the movie Robin Hood. And, of course, Errol Flynn was the star. And Howard Hill did the, the shooting. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I became enthralled with this guy, Robin Hood. And when I found out a guy named Howard Hill did the shooting, I figured, well, he's one of my heroes, too. And as I got a little older uh, and I got to see uh, Errol Finn movies, he became my hero because, after all, he played Robin Hood. So I had three heroes as a kid growing up, mainly Robin Hood. As I got a little older... It, it, it was uh, Errol Flynn because he played Robin Hood as my actor, my favorite actor, and uh, and Howard Hill, who was a trick shot archer. And then my dad used to take me hunting when I was a little kid, and he'd supervise me, and, and he'd have a license, and he'd let me pull the trigger after I had practiced, and he knew I was very proficient with his 30-30. And I took a deer when I was nine. I took another one when I was ten. I took another one when I was 11. And I got to thinking, my goodness, this is pretty easy <clears throat> to, uh, you know, to hunt. And there's really no challenge. So I took up archery at the age of 12. And uh, I think my first uh, junior championship in California that I won was when I was 13. But anyway, when I turned uh, 16, I turned professional and actually started getting paid to do shows. And I, I picked the prettiest girl in school and said, Hey, how would you like to have an apple shot off your head? She said, Are you crazy? I said, Well, we'll be on television two weeks if you agree. Oh, oh in that case. <laughs> so it, <laughs> it hasn't been difficult to find girls. And uh, once they work with me, they don't just get up there and hold something in their hand or something. They they watch me shoot, and I always pick a little dot, like uh, three-quarters of an inch in, in diameter, and I get back at 30 feet, which is what I execute my act at. And uh, then they get the confidence when I keep hitting it. And they figure, gee, that that's pretty small. Apple's pretty big. I use big apples, incidentally. But as far as hunting goes, uh, I started hunting. Uh, at the age of uh, 14, actually. I'd go up in the Verdugo Hills, which is outside of Glendale, uh, my my hometown that I was born and raised in, in Cal- Southern California. It's not far from Burbank and Hollywood, but it has a little mountain range called the Verdugo Hills. And I'd go up there with my bow and arrow, and uh, the first critter I ever shot was a dove. 
and I brought that dove home, and I had my mom pluck it and cook it. And uh, as you know, eating one dove, there's certainly a lot, not a lot of meat, but uh, I just picked every little bit and enjoyed it, the way she cooked it, and so forth. And then I shot rattlesnakes up there, and rabbits, cottontails, and coyotes, and it became my little hunting ground. And when deer, when the deer season came around, I was able to legally shoot deer up in the Verdugo Hills. So that's how I got started hunting. Well, you, and then, of course, as I progressed, it went from, <clears throat> you know, other big game in other states. Yeah, I didn't, real, I didn't realize, Bob, that you come from the same uh, sort of general area as uh, our longtime and dearly departed trails and columnist, uh, Jim Doherty. Absolutely. Jim and I are buddies. <clears throat> he, was, uh, he worked at Kittry's Archery Shop. Yeah. In Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met uh, met them. I knew Doug Kittredge well, and I knew Jim Doherty. Jim Doherty and I were basically, we are the same, were the same age. And uh, we kind of grew up together. He he stayed, you know, very high profile in the archery industry. And I went off in the theatrical industry, mm-hmm. performing as an entertainer. I still managed to write articles. I've written over 200 uh, bow hunting stories. In fact, some of them were for your magazine. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, he was strictly with the archers, and I was out there performing for just the general public in Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, all through Europe and uh, the South Pacific and Africa. I even did shows in Africa. So, uh, you know, we each pursued that part of archery that we felt very comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And I thought in my own way, I was being an ambassador for my sport just by getting out there and performing for mostly non-archers. Because when I would leave, I'm sure there was lots of people that said, gee, that looks like, you know, that's pretty cool. And then I... I uh, tried to pay back because the industry has been very kind to me. And about every third year I'd go on a school tour Mm. and and I had seen the world before I saw much of America at all. I'd been to 68 countries before I really saw more than three States in America. And then when I did these school tours, I went everywhere, every little town in, 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 uh, 40, two of all the states. Uh, I took tours through Texas. I took tours through Montana, Idaho, and even the East Coast. And I got to see some little towns where when I went to that town, there was a population of maybe 150 people. But when I went to the school to perform, there were 500 kids. And I figured, how can this happen? Mm. And it was because they were bussed in by the surrounding farm areas. Sure. So, I mean, uh, I really got to see America. And what was cool, I'm working five days a week doing the school tours. I have Saturdays and Sundays off. So if I'm in a state that has a lot of game, I'm out scouting because I'm going to come back during hunting season. Yeah. And and that was really cool. It was an excuse that those school assemblies, I didn't exactly get rich doing them. It was a, a, a... 
labor of love. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it because those little kids, their eyes got as big as saucers, you know. And I, I shoot blindfolded for a finale. And uh, the little kids, you know, they would be screaming and yelling, and, and they just loved the show. And when I'd leave, uh, the, the Bureau of Lectures, or the Bureau of School Assembly Circuit, there's four of them in America, and I worked for all four at different times, but uh, they, they'd send out report cards, uh, so to speak, to the different schools about the... Uh, the different assemblies that they had received through the Bureau over the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, my report card always said the best assembly we've had, or they did it on the uh, one, two, three, four, five star basis, you know. And I, I never had less than a four star. Wow. But the average one was five stars. And they said, oh, we really enjoyed the, the kids. Just, and, and the, the, uh, the reply was not only the kids, but the teachers thoroughly enjoyed it because I put history into the show. I didn't shoot for a whole 45 minutes. I shot for maybe 15 minutes and the rest was a lecture about the history of archery and about the cultures. And I showed ancient bows from Turkey, from Mongolia, uh, the English longbow. And the kids got a history lesson. They got a safety lesson. And they got uh, shown a little bit how to shoot a bow and arrow on stage. I, I would get a kid up and, and do an instruction thing with them. Yeah, it's funny, you know, Bob, because history always repeats itself, doesn't it? We've uh, we've got another generation, and somewhere out there right now in America is probably the next Bob Markworth. And what I mean by that is you spent a little bit of time telling us about how Robin Hood was your hero, and you were very inspired by that movie and that character, and it didn't take long before you had launched an entire life and career for yourself in the archery world, and today we've got many thousands and tens of thousands of shooters that have come into the sport because of things like the Hunger Games. And, exactly. Uh, you know, it's really a phenomenon, and uh, that's been awfully good for our sport, hasn't it, Bob? I absolutely believe so, and you could see the, the sales of archery. Uh, you see, when, I live in Vegas now, mm-hmm. uh, and there's three archery shops here. And I'm, uh, I, I don't show any favoritism. I do uh, uh, charity work for all three of the shops, and I do seminars, uh, bow hunting seminars, and, and I occasionally do my show when they need a fundraiser. But uh, I see the throngs of people coming in and uh, wanting to learn. They have the, the, the Groupon thing, you know, you get, uh, oh, yeah, you uh, get... with the media and everything. Sure. You get reduced rates and so forth. So you, you've got all these people learning, and every once in a while, I make myself available to make an appearance just as an instructor. And then, uh, of course, I have DVDs about my trick shooting, and, and sometimes people want to buy that. And I usually uh, sell it and give 50% of the, the funds to uh, a bow hunting promotion, uh, a charity. And... Uh, that satisfies me, and it still gives me a little bit of a commercial edge on doing something that I like doing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit now about uh, 
the Safari Club International Convention. It was just there this past weekend in Las Vegas, and I know you spent the weekend uh, catching up with lots of uh, old friends and outfitters and uh, fellow bow hunters there. And um, because of all the work that you've done over the years with your entertaining, uh, you've had as you said, you know, you've visited 60-some-odd countries, and you've had a chance to hunt all around the world. You've probably uh, done more international hunting than most American bow hunters will do American bow hunting in their entire lifetime. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, the state of, of international bow hunting. I know it's something that you feel very passionate about, Bob, and... Um, while it's you know it's not easy or inexpensive, it's something that you really uh, <laughs> heartily recommend to your fellow bow hunters, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, as far as the countries I've been to, I've, I've performed in sixty-four countries, but I've actually been to eighty countries. Okay. And those extra countries, I would go there because there was bow hunting or I had an opportunity to do a, 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 a promotion or a, a show, you know. But in all those countries, I would make a big attempt to to seek out the uh, archery if they had any. For example, Japan and Korea, archery is very sacred to them. And uh, I spent a lot of time in Japan. I, I speak a fair amount of Japanese. And uh, I would do my act in Japanese, which the people love. If you take the time to learn even a little bit of conversational uh, language of the country you're in, they just love it. And, and I was only in Japan like three weeks when I'd get up on stage and I'd say, And, you know, I was walking, welcoming the uh, audience in their own language. And, and I I got for a, a, a short period of time in Japan, and, and that period of time was a, a total of 18 months. I did six months in 58, six months in 59, and six months in 60, because you couldn't, couldn't stay longer than six months on a working visa. So collectively, I was a year and a half in Japan, and I was treated like I guess a rock star would be treated. Mm. People would stop me on the street and say, oh, we saw you in television, you know, and they'd try to talk to me in English, and if they didn't, I understood a little Japanese. Uh, but it was a thrill. And then I would go to the uh, uh, the temples where they teach archery in, in, Japan, in, in Japan. They call all foreigners... Uh, strangers, which is, in Japanese means gaijin. Mm -hmm. So I was a gaijin. I was a foreigner. And I probably was the only gaijin ever to be invited into the sacred temples and allowed to watch the, the, uh, the sensei teach archery to the, the, the Japanese people. And I had restrictions before I would sit down and and watch that with uh, with my host, I would have to go to a little alcove on the side and uh, prostrate myself uh, before a deity and then sit quietly 
and watch the uh, you know the session of instruction, and I could take no pictures. Uh, I could write about it, <clears throat> but they don't allow any pictures inside the temple. But I thought it was a great honor, and uh, I left there just just void, you know, to to the max because they had allowed me to do that. And, and I tried in every country to uh, to study the ones that shoot, like in New Guinea. I hunted in New Guinea, and, and very few people have ever hunted in New Guinea. Uh, they have a deer called Arusa deer. Very few and, people uh, even know where New Guinea is, Bob, so why don't you tell us? <laughs> okay. New Guinea is just north of northern Australia. And it's uh, it's uh, it's an island. It's a very large island, and that's where um, uh, Rockefeller's son lost his life. He was over there for oh some reason, and uh, he was killed. They never found his body, but they were sure he was killed. And there's speculation that he was. Uh, uh, killed by the cannibals. They still have cannibalism back there in the highlands. Or he was uh, just shot, you know, as, as a stranger coming around. Or he drowned, or a saltwater crocodile got him. I believe a saltwater crocodile got him. Mm. Because the, the rivers are just loaded with the largest crocodile in the world, which is the saltwater crocodile. And when I hunted there, I hunted these rusa deer, and I would see, without exaggerating, up to 800 a day on the floodplains. There were no roads. We had to fly in by bush plane, and we hunted by boat. We used the rivers as our highways, and we'd get out of the boat and stalk these animals. But you'd only see the, see the rusa deer on these floodplains, and there'd be maybe 100. Or, well, that's an exaggeration. There'd be maybe 60 rusa deer. Mm -hmm. uh, eating the lush vegetation from the swamp-like uh, floodplains. And then we put a stock on it. You're allowed four, four stags. And so while I was there, I shot four stags and about 11 wild boar. And those are the two animals, basically, that you hunt. But the fishing was great. They have a fish called a barramundi. Uh, it's a freshwater, and it's, like a, it's not like a salmon. But the habits are like a salmon because they go fresh and salt water. Mm. And they're delicious to eat. And, uh, and they also have, uh, uh, well, the, the, the natives eat bats. They eat the flying foxes, which get as bigger than horned owls. I mean, some of them have a wingspan of about four feet. Wow. And uh, that's a pretty big bat. In fact, uh, uh, they asked me to shoot one, and I did, and, and they took these poles that they they were just tree uh, tree branches, and they'd shave off the branches and make poles out of them, and they'd charge and whack these bats off the top of the, you know, the lower-hanging trees. And I said, what are you going to do with those? I said, well, we're going to bring them to the village and eat them. They spoke pidgin English where I was. I wasn't in the super interior where the people... Uh, speak their own dialect. Incidentally, and you can look this up in the encyclopedia, New Guinea, the island of New Guinea, it's an island now. They speak 700 different languages and uh, dialects. 
And the reason for that is each village is basically uh, isolated from the other one. Hence the, ca- hence the cannibalism, uh, I believe, uh, because you don't have to, you can live in a village in New Guinea and never have to go further than a mile and a half from your village because you've got wild boar all over the place in the bush. They eat bats, and those fruit bats are all over. And you fish for barramundi and other edible fish in the rivers. Mm-hmm. And you get the mud crabs, uh, which are wonderful. It tastes kind of like Dungeness crabs. So they're self-sufficient. And then if they never leave their village, and some of them wander a little further than, than the average, and they run into someone from another village, they don't know if they're friend or foe. And if they're foe, they better kill them before they kill them. I mean, that's the way they think. And then if you kill them, don't waste the meat. <laughs> Hence your cannibalism. So I, I had the honor of, of being able to go to that country and uh, and see what's happening. And the people I hunted with weren't the savage savages. They, were, they spoke what's called pigeon English. So I could uh, converse with my with my guides and, and, and uh, trackers, yeah, talk, and they're called carry boys there. Talk to me a little bit about maybe one or two. We don't have time to do it all, or of course we'd write a whole book, because um, you've been so many places. Talk to me, uh, maybe, tell me about your most harrowing experience you've ever had on an overseas hunt, Bob. Did you ever find yourself in a, a, a stickly wicket? Yeah. Uh, In fact, I wrote an article for Sports of Field that they published about it. Uh, Of all animals, because I've hunted buffalo and and, uh, dangerous game, but of all animals that almost killed me was a black wildebeest. And uh, these are, of course, from Africa, and they're a plains game. Yeah, where were you hunting? Usually, I was hunting in Zimbabwe. And... uh, uh, I, I was, I really couldn't get close enough to shoot a wildebeest because they usually stay in a clearing and they see danger approaching, you know, and I couldn't get within 60 yards. It would be a hundred yard shot. I don't take long shots. I don't like to wound an animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm capable as, as anybody else taking really long shots, but I kind of limit all my shots to 60 yards. And that way, I'm like 95% sure that I'm going to get a killing shot. Anyway, there was no way I could get within that distance of a black wildebeest. But when I was returning to be picked up by a vehicle on a road from my blind where they left me off, and I'd already shot a uh, kudu, I'm walking back, and uh, I'm going through the brush, and I hear a movement, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe bush buck or something and I came really close to a black wildebeest I mean I'm talking about 15 yards away mm-hmm. and we surprised each other and I don't know what he was doing in the bush because it's an animal that's supposed to be out in the plains but he was in the bush and I put an arrow in him and he's not considered an aggressive animal but but like like our elk, you never know. Right. You get an elk that's in the rut, and you, can, and you would probably know that better than I. But I shot this black wildebeest, 
And he just flat out charged. Now he's 15 yards away. And there's no way, no matter where I hit him with an arrow, that I could stop him. No way, unless it was a spinal shot. And when you have that uh, 700-pound animal charging towards you, or maybe, that's, maybe he weighs less, maybe he's 500 pounds. But when he's charging at that distance, there, there's no hope. And I, I was alone. So uh, there was an acacia thorn bush. And these thorns, uh, you've been to Africa, and you know that they, they're like an inch and a half to two inches long, these thorns. And that was my closest cover, safe cover. So I figure if I cast myself into that bush. Ooh, that sounds painful. Thorns, yeah, it was. It ripped, the, it ripped the heck out of my camel. But anyway, I dropped my bow and just leaped into the thorn bush. And just, it was shredding my skin and, and ripping my camel. And this animal came right at me, but, but he, he couldn't get into that thorn bush. So he kind of wheeled around for a better approach to that thorn bush. And fortunately, my arrow had gone right into his chest and cut the aorta into his heart. And he just ran out of steam and uh, dropped at my feet. Uh, my feet, of course, were sticking out, but the rest of my body was inside that thorn bush. And uh, I painfully pulled myself out and faced a dead uh, black wildebeest. Well, that was and, a pretty uh, exciting I, 30 seconds, wasn't it? I, yeah, I haven't hunted a black wildebeest since. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you decide on some things once in a lifetime is enough, Bob. There you go. There yeah. you go, Christian. How about it? Well, um, you know, you were just at the Safari Club convention, and of course you've hunted with outfitters all over the world. What uh, What is your advice to uh, all those many bow hunters uh who are here in America, and they've never been uh, even to Canada or Mexico, never mind Africa or New Guinea or Argentina or wherever. Um, what uh, what would your recommendations and advice be to a bow hunter who thinks that perhaps they'd like to get their feet wet in a international bow hunting? Well, that's a good question, and I've, I've got a, a real answer for you right away uh a lot of bow hunters you know we read your magazine and, and a few other magazines and we think oh this is a cool hunt this is a mule deer hunter like tail or elk hunt and uh it's fun and i think a dedicated bow hunter here in america has hunt, hunted quite a few uh deer and elk and, and uh, even mountain lion maybe some boar javelina uh, and they only dream about going overseas because they figure, well, it's it's really expensive, and I don't know. Well, you know, when you go on a vacation or a holiday, it's expensive wherever you go. And if you're planning on having a an overseas hunt, then you should judge which country should I go to because there's different critters in different countries, and some overlap. And the best way to make an honest decision is to come to Las Vegas once a year, usually in February, sometimes in January, when they have the SDI convention that I just attended and do every year. And it lasts for five days. And in those five days, you will see 
thousands of boots of, of outfitters that are from Africa, from South America, from Mexico, from the Yukon, from Alaska, uh, from Alberta. I mean, uh, from every hunting area in the world. And you can wander through there during that five-year period of time and collect their brochures and, uh, and talk to them and, and, and say, look, I really can't afford some of these hunts. But we do, my family and I, do take vacations occasionally. And, and, and if it's a husband and wife team and they're both hunters, it would be a wonderful way to save up instead of going on a, a regular vacation every year Skip two years and then make that third year a holiday in a foreign country where they can hunt some critters they never, never thought that they could. And then they can afford it because they sacrificed mm -hmm. a couple of uh, vacations or the money that they would have spent on a couple of local vacations, sure. which they might have, you know. So uh, I would just say to all bull hunters, at one time or another, use Las Vegas as an excuse. Come to this, the Sin City, as they call it, and visit. Have just a, a weekend, if that's all you can afford. But make that weekend the same weekend that the SCI convention is. Go to the convention. Check out hunting in other places. You may find that you, you've got a, a deal in Mexico that's not very expensive at all, or in Canada, and you've never left the States. And you say, well, I think I'll head for there for the next hunt mm -hmm. and, and just try it. Well, like you say, there's a lot of different experiences, and it's not just the different animals. It's the different people, different culture, oh, okay. different food, and lots of new things to experience out there. Exactly right, Christian. Exactly right. Now, I've had such a good time talking to you, Bob. I'm not quite ready to let you go. I hope that you'll, <laughs> will you let me keep you for just a few more minutes? Absolutely, my friend. Well, because I just feel like a man of your experience in this sport, I, I would very much like to know. I, I um, of course, here at Peterson's Bowhunting, you know, we, we cover an awful lot of new gear, and you see it for yourself how quickly the technology changes and look at these bows and nowadays and all the advancements with the arrows and the materials and the micro diameter and the broadheads and everything changes so fast um, right you started shooting with uh, recurve bows and I'm sure uh, many many years of uh, cedar arrows and very simple uh, broadheads what do you think about today's equipment and what sort of uh, gear do you rely on for your hunts nowadays uh, do you have strong opinions on you know what we ought to use or what you think is most effective well uh, for the sake of our sport because we all know that we're outnumbered by the non-hunters and the anti-hunters and so for the sake of our sport we should use more or the most uh, efficient and proficient uh, equipment because we're going to uh, be able to harvest our animals more effectively and statistically more of them without wounding them. Uh, I'm still kind of old-fashioned. Uh, I still use a lot of two-bladed uh, Zwicky heads, which I 
file down one by one by hand so they're razor sharp. Uh, because Ricky was an old friend of mine and they worked all these years. The new heads are fabulous and they do a great job. Uh, if you're hunting deer or elk, stick with some of the newer broadheads and, and I don't want to mention uh, my favorite ones. But when you're hunting thick-skinned animals like a buffalo uh, or an elephant, which uh, I certainly couldn't afford to hunt an elephant, and I don't think I want to. It's, a, it's an animal I really don't have a passion to shoot. But when hunting buffalo, uh, you've got to have penetration. So why try and shoot a 120-pound longbow uh, unless you really can handle that. And now if you're a big enough, strong enough guy like Howard Hill was, that's fine. I couldn't dream in, in my entire life of ever pulling a 100-pound bow, and I would have had to build up to it. But I just say shoot a proficient weapon, and uh, most of your top uh, compound manufacturers, to mention a few, uh Hoyt, Matthews, uh, they're, they're all good, excellent compounds. And a lot of other compounds are excellent. So shoot a compound that you can handle, never too heavy, never too heavy. 50 pounds is, is enough to kill anything in North America. And I think the only animal that you'd have trouble with a 50-pound bull is if you hit a wild boar right in that shield and uh, one that had been fighting for years and had built up a lot of scar tissue, and he hit that shield. But other than that, uh, the bow's fine. And there's a lot of macho people, I shoot a 75-pound bow. Well, that's terrific, and it's very efficient, but you don't need to in America. Mm -hmm. uh, not even for Kodiak or brown bear. And that's a soft-skinned animal. And you could take a brown bear just as easily with a 50-pound bow as you could a 75-pound bow. So there's not many animals uh, in, in all of North America. Uh, I shot my muskox with a 55-pound bow years ago up in the Arctic, and they've got thick, thick, thick hair. Not that their skin is thick, but the hair is just really thick, and you've got to use a two-bladed rod in. And if you use more than two blades, on a thick-skinned animal, or even a muskox. I think it's silly. Uh, but having said that, almost all the other animals, the new broadheads are very, very efficient, much more so than uh, the old-fashioned Zwicky and so forth, and that's a, that's a fact. And as far as the arrows go, uh, I was around when Jim Easton's father uh, started making Durrell arrows and it was an aluminum alloy, but it was a little soft. And then he uh, he finally got the temper the tempering process down, and he was able to make uh, uh, the, the proper aluminum arrows. I still use aluminum arrows. The, the carbon is is better and thinner, and you get probably a little better penetration. And and if I'm going after something very special. I swap over to carbon, or uh, if it's really a thick-skinned animal, I used a, a, a tube inside of a tube uh, yeah. of aluminum for the weight uh, in a two-bladed head. 
and uh, and and this other equipment. I mean, your range finders you have nowadays are unbelievable. I seldom take a shot at an animal without ranging it first. Yeah, because I just don't like to wound one, and, and I don't think any uh, bow hunter really wants to see a wounded animal. Well, the arrival of the handheld rangefinder is one of the greatest uh, blessings ever to come upon the modern bow hunter, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think it's a must. And and there are people that say, "Oh, that's kind of cheating," you know, on the distance. Well, okay, if you want to be a real purist and you want to say, "Don't use a compound; use a longbow," that's fine. And don't use a rangefinder; judge your distance. That's fine too. But also, I will say in the same breath, don't wound the bloody animal. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have something like the Cecil the Lion situation. If you're going to put an arrow in an animal, you better feel when you release that that string that that arrow is going to hit where you want it to hit. And I can't see that being done instinctively with uh, certain, you know, primitive tight bolts at a distance of 60 yards even even at relatively close ranges you know it's a very interesting game and i encourage anybody who's listening if you don't do this regularly i try to do this as i do my practicing uh and my preparation for my hunts throughout the summer if i'm out uh you know in the backyard or in the woods around my home is uh even though i've got that range finder around my neck i like to try to guess the ranges before i absolutely check absolutely because there's uh, sure there's times where you don't have time to to get the range finder up you know but time, there you know. there are many times where you have some odd terrain uh you know the steep angles or some sort of a void in between you and your intended target it can be very deceiving and very difficult to come up with an accurate <laughs> estimate so Absolutely. uh for exactly the reasons that you said not just the wounding but just uh even for myself you know or you or think about any of our listeners we talked about this idea of of going on a uh, an international hunt where you might perhaps save for several years to afford that. Um, you've got a lot of time and energy and effort invested in that opportunity that presents itself for only a brief window. And um, I need to know the range because that tells me where to hold my pin. And I know that if I can hold my pin in the right place and execute the shot the way that I've practiced all summer, I'm going to kill that animal. And that's very exactly. important to me. Yeah, very, very true, Christian. And, and that's that's the ethics of hunting. You you don't want to be a statistic. And, and I like Cecil the lion, and I had a, a wounded animal, though, because that that hurts the entire sport. Mm-hmm. And every time we have that kind of bad press, and you know that's what the media is looking for, not our media, not the hunting, hunter's media, but just the media in general. They're, that's what that's what sells papers. That's what sells magazines. Uh, there's a lot more antis out there than there are hunters. So we've got to be uh, we've got to be conscientious hunters, and we've got to avoid uh, the the possibility, or let's put it this way, we've got to avoid the probability of wounding an animal, which is taking a shot longer than we're capable of hitting. And having said that, whether you shoot a bone arrow, or a rifle, or a handgun, or a crossbow, 
whatever your weapon of choice is, we're all hunters, and we're all we all have to band together, and we should get rid of the bloody prejudice that is uh, involved uh, in our own sport. Even yeah. don't look down on somebody because he doesn't use the same kind of bow that you do, or that you're better because you 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 won't uh, uh, shoot these fang dangled modern inventions like the compound. Just remember that you represent a large fraternity, and it's not just archers. It's crossbow hunters. It's spear chuckers. It's rifle hunters. It's shotgun hunters. We're all hunters, and we've got to to recognize that. That's what I like about this uh, SCI. Uh, it's, it's a hunting organization. It's not for archers, it's not for guns, it's not for shotguns or crossbows. It's for everybody that hunts. And we're all ambassadors out there. And we shouldn't over, we shouldn't take chances, let's put it that way. We have a responsibility to our sport. Because if one guy fouls up and it's caught by the press and it's, it, it's just beaten down in, in all the papers with, with uh, publicity, then you're hurting everybody's right to hunt. And uh, we have to keep that in mind at all times. Well, and uh, you and I, as writers, uh, you know very well that we can't make a mistake because it would ruin our reputations uh, for anything we ever got published or for anything anybody would believe. So we have to go uh, extra careful. Mm-hmm. And if you're high profile, but the main thing is whatever weapon you choose, practice with it and be proficient with it. And I don't like to pick on lawyers, but they're very wealthy people and a lot of them hunt. And if they're so wealthy because they work so hard, they've got to find the time to bench shoot their rifle before they go out on a hunt. If they're too busy making money, and I'm not picking on the lawyers, this is just an example. If anybody's too busy to to uh, practice with your weapon and be proficient with it, then you don't deserve to be out in the woods hunting, because you're going to do all of us uh, 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 just a lot of damage. And uh, I I preach that all the time because I believe in it strongly. Well, you and if should. I wasn't. If you I sure, didn't feel you sure do. You sure do, Bob. I appreciate you uh, sharing that message. I agree with you, and so I was happy to. I was happy to let you get up on your soapbox for a minute there because that is an important. <laughs> that's an important message that uh, we need to uh, embrace and realize that we do have a we do have a shared responsibility in the fraternity of hunters to uh, um, uphold. Uh, you know, a positive image for for our sport. Uh, I'd Absolutely. like to I'd like to leave you with with this, Bob. You mentioned something to me right before we started recording today's show, and I thought it was very interesting, and I thought it was would be a fitting way to close out our show. As you mentioned to me, that after sixty some years of shooting uh, a bow and arrow that you are uh, approaching your one millionth shot of your lifetime. Tell me a little bit about that and how people can learn 
more about you, Bob, because I know that you have some books. I know that you have uh, a variety of videos and, and ways that people can see more of all that you do. Uh, you know, we just don't have the time to go into all of that. But tell me about your millionth shot and tell me or tell the listeners how they can maybe get on their computer and find out other ways to connect with you if they're interested in doing that. Well, uh, thank you. Um, yes, I uh, I love archery, as you know, and it, it is my life. My entire life has been dedicated to shooting a bow and arrow. You might say I'm married to my bow. Uh, but I I like, I'm great. First of all, I'm very grateful to the Lord that I have the longevity to be able to shoot and to be steady as a rock. And I, I probably will regret telling the world that uh, this year, uh, 2016, I will turn 80 years old. I still climb mountains. I still chase the critters. I still appear on stage, and I'm steady as a rock. Now, I know that that cannot continue uh, forever, and uh, I have no intention of retiring. I'll be bow hunting until I can't pull the bow, but I will not start. I will not continue shooting uh, at uh, uh, a human being or near a human being if uh, if I deteriorate, not if, when I deteriorate. And uh, so far, uh, I, I feel like I'm 36 years old and I'm still uh, hanging with those crowds. But the point is, everybody should know their own limitations and everybody should practice. If you have a passion, if archery is your passion, then put the time in on your passion because you are the blessed few that have found a passion. And passion is what life is all about. If you've got something that really pushes your button, turns you on, keep going, keep doing it. And the way to keep going is to do it because if you take a, a hiatus or if you take off for a year or two, you might lose it. And I'll tell you, I still got it because I keep doing it. And, and, and that's the name of the game. Do what you love. Be an ambassador for your sport, whatever it is. If it's underwater basket weaving, <laughs> whatever turns you on. But we're archers. So just remember, just work at it. And uh, that's the secret. And that's the secret to staying young. If you can do what you love, You'll stay young. Confucius said, find a job you love and you'll never work another day in your life. I guess he was a pretty smart dude. I guess so. So where can people learn more about Bob Markworth? Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website. You can access it just by bobmarkworth.com. And a whole bunch of stuff will come up. And if you want to see my latest episode of uh, America's Got Talent, just go Bob Markworth. America's Got Talent auditions, and you'll see 10 different uh, TV things and stuff, and you'll see the episode that uh, that uh, really turned them on and so forth. And, uh, and my books, I have two that are available right now. My autobiography is coming out in about a month, but uh, I, I wrote a self-help book called In Search of It, and at this moment, it's only available by phoning or contacting Pacific Archery 
in uh, right here in Las Vegas. Uh, you can look them up. Pacific Archery is one of three archery shops here, and uh, they can take orders over the phone, uh, or they can take them by email. And uh, my book is available there, and also my autobiography will be available. And uh, later on uh, next month, it'll be available on Amazon because it's only available now in Kindle form on Amazon. What, but, uh, uh, what's your autobiography going to be called, Bob? You have a title for that yet? Oh, I absolutely do. Uh, An American Robin Hood. Awesome. Wow. That's cool, man. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Well, Bob, I appreciate that. You know, this was a different show today for Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio. We we tend to talk a lot of tactics and strategies and equipment news. And I gotta say, I enjoyed spending an hour with you. Uh, one of the real living legends of of our sport, man, and a guy. You know, I used to tell this to Jim Doherty from time to time because you know the way things go now. Everything is the Internet age, and if you're not on YouTube all the time and have an app for your cell phone, you know, people just don't tend to know. Even myself, as the editor of Peterson's Bowhunting, print is pretty old school anymore, you know. I'm not a household name, and certainly, Bob, um, you know, there was probably a time uh, maybe 10 or 20 years ago where you were better known then than you are now. And yet you've continued to accumulate all these accomplishments, uh, in archery. So it's been my pleasure to hear about all the things that you've done and hopefully to let our audience know that we've still got guys like Bob Markworth out there, you know, 70 some years old, uh, almost 80. And, and, and to think of all that you've done and you continue to do and to hear that your passion for the bow and the arrow is just as strong today as it was when you first started shooting at 12 or 13 years old is unbelievable man so i wish you nothing but the best as you go forward i hope the book is a great success for you and uh who knows you know i may yet share a hunting camp with you somewhere i look forward to that my friend i look forward to that christian and uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you on the phone and i hope i see you real soon and uh, maybe we can just talk a little more off the cuff. You got it, Bob. God bless you, sir. God bless you, sir. Bye. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new Ultra Micro Diameter Injection Arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now. <laughs>